This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, today we've got a special guest on the podcast. His name is Josh Hawley. So he is a United States senator representing the state of Missouri. He's the New York Times bestselling author of the book, The Tyranny of Big Tech, and his latest book, which is out now, which is really the center point of our entire talk today, which is Manhood, The Masculine Virtues America Needs. And uh, before he was elected to the U.S. Senate in 2018, he worked as a First Amendment lawyer and a law professor and served as the attorney general of the state of Missouri. But the thing about this book and this interview today is, yes, he's a politician. Some of you don't like politicians. I don't really care. I'll talk to whoever. But this is a guy that is a legitimate Christian. Now, there are politicians out there that love to, you know, put scripture verses on some of their mailers and, you know, they'll go to churches and go to rallies and things like that, but they don't actually believe. They don't believe that a Middle Eastern Jew uh, 2,000 years ago died on the cross as a full payment of their sins so that they could be before an almighty and all just God. They just don't believe that, right? They believe in morality. They believe in a Judeo-Christian ethic, but they don't believe in Christ. But Josh Hawley does. And so he writes a book about manhood. And here's the thing, and I mentioned this in the interview. I've gotten a lot of manhood books sent to me. I've had a lot pitched to me for this show, some of which have made it onto the show, some have not. But the majority of the ones that I've read, and it is a majority, I'm not being hyperbolic, they're just vapid. They're just empty. It's just platitude after platitude after platitude with no real connection to any type of a cogent philosophy, much less to a Judeo-Christian ethic, much less to a theologically adept and correct understanding of Christianity. But somehow, a United States senator who should be in these Senate meetings, you know, throwing, you know, policy stuff around, he wrote one of the best books on manhood that I've ever read in my entire life. As I was reading it, I was in the back of my head like, okay, this is in that upper tier. This is in that wild at heart tier of manhood books. And it just, it was a complete surprise. I mean, I thought I was going to be getting a policy book and here I was, I get this book on manhood. So in this particular interview, I don't really want to set it up any more than I already have. We're going to talk about manhood and masculinity in America and how the current state of manhood and masculinity in America is actually at threat of really ending our Republic. So guys, I really enjoyed my time with him. So without further ado, let's get into it. Josh Holly, welcome to Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you today specifically about your book, but I just got to be honest with you right out of the gate here. Your staff did the right thing. They asked me before this interview, hey, you know, are you going to ask about anything else, anything about policy, anything in the news? And I boldface lied to them. I said no, but the, the world needs to know your answer to this following question, and I hope okay. your soul is prepared for it. So here you go. It's a two-part question to start out. Oh, boy. All right. Do we have aliens and UFOs in our possession? And secondary question, how many aliens and UFOs have you seen personally? Oh, I, I thought the second part was going to be, and is Joe Biden one of them? Um, no, 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 so no, 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 no. For, first, I don't know the answer to the first question. Mm. Um, I, I really don't. In fact, I, I was in a, a briefing with a bunch of military people. It's now been, I guess, maybe six months ago. Maybe it was nine months ago. And I still remember this part. They're kind of glossing over. They were. They don't like to say UFO anymore, by the way. You know, yeah, they, UAP. Say, yes, UAP. So I'm listening to this and like, you know, well, you know, UAPs and 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 there have been you know, numerous sightings over decades and the number they threw out was a huge number. So I actually I, I interrupted and I said, I'm sorry, wait a minute. Can we just back up? Did you just tell me that there was X number over right. how many years at all of our military installations? And they said, yeah, that's right. And I said, well, that's kind of a problem, don't you think? Yeah. And they said, well, you know, we're studying it. We're studying it. So the answer is, I don't know if we have them in our possession. Nothing would surprise me at this point. Um, and what was the second one? 
Well, I would just, you know, I I figured you were going to lie about the first one, which you just did. You said exactly what they want you to say, right? I just asked how many aliens and UFOs have you seen personally, which, you know, who who knows? Well, none that I know of, but you know what? Who knows what's (laughs) real anymore? Hey, they they might be running the White House for all we know. So I appreciate you indulging me with that ridiculous question. You wouldn't imagine, you can't imagine the people in my audience and their interest in that kind of stuff, but we'll leave that up to them. But the main thing I wanted to talk to you about today is your new book that is out now, guys. It's called Manhood, The Masculine Virtues America Needs. So I just finished this book within the last few days, and I told you off air that I thought it was a fantastic book. I I get sent a lot of manhood books. I read a lot of manhood books because that's kind of, you know, our thing here, trying to equip men to be able to push back darkness. I feel that most of them, though, are fairly vapid. It's kind of the same, you know pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you're going to be fine and eat some meat and work out. And it's like, okay, all that stuff's fine, but there's a, there's a deeper meaning to all this. But I guess the the easiest question is why'd you write this book and why should we care what a U.S. Senator from the state of Missouri thinks about manhood? Well, I wrote the book because I've got two little boys at home. Elijah is my older son who's 10 and Blaze, who's my younger son who's eight. And I also have a baby girl. I say baby, she's two years old now, but she'll forever mm-hmm. be my baby. So uh, I we've got my wife and I have these three kids and really, the book started as me as a father thinking about for my boys, what is it that I need to do as a dad to help them grow into being the men that God has created them to be? And I love your your slogan, your mission statement about pushing back the darkness, because that really, if you look at Genesis, if you go all the yeah. way back and you look at the scripture and you look at Genesis, you look at Adam in the garden where it all started, what is it God told him to do? God told him to go and push back the darkness. There's something yep. in that call to men that it goes right to the soul and core of who we are. So why should you care what I have to say? You shouldn't, but you should care, I hope, about what the scripture has to say, what the Bible has to say. And if you're a Christian, then you know why that's true. If you're not a Christian, you know you can at least get on with this, that this book is the single most influential book in our culture or human history. So it's probably worth a look at. Yeah, even if you don't believe it, even if you thought it was written by, you know, Emperor Constantine and his buddies, you know, a couple thousand years ago, you should probably look at it and see it for what it is. I think one thing you made click for me as I was reading through the book, Josh, is I talk about equipping men to push back darkness and pushing back darkness spiritually, mentally, and physically and all that. But it's like, what did God do whenever he, you know, he was the big banger, like he pushed back the darkness, the void that was everything and put something there and cause it to be light. And so uh, that kind of clicked for me. And I was like, okay, that that's big. I'm going to totally steal that from you and put it in a book of, of my own here down the road. So, but in the, in the second paragraph of the book, which by the way, guys, if you're going to write a book out there and your first tra- chapter is garbage, just throw the rest of the book away because your first chapter, it really grips the reader and kind of carries them through. So bravo on that. But in the second paragraph of the book, you give this quote that haunted me the rest of the time I was reading the book. Okay. So to set it up, you're talking about conversations that you were having with your students when you were a law professor uh, in Missouri years back. And when talking with a particular male student or with, I guess, just a, a bevy of male students, here was the quote from your book. One after another said in one way or another, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do with my life. And yet they felt that they were failing at whatever that was. The reason why that's so haunting is because they don't even know why they're sad and empty, but they know that because they're sad and empty that they're failing. And so talk to me a little bit more about that, because if you keep that in mind as you read the book, I feel like the content is even more juicy. To me, I think what that really speaks to is the lack of purpose that young men, probably men of all ages, but particularly young men feel in our culture right now. And I've just seen it over and over 
and over. They don't have any sense of what their life is supposed to be about, and yet they want their lives to matter. Every man wants his life to matter. I mean, every man wants to leave a legacy, wants to make a difference, wants to do something purposeful with his life. But I think young men, especially today, hear constantly from the left and the media that their lives as men, A, don't matter, B, to the extent they do matter, make the world a worse place. You know, that to be a man is to be toxic. It is to ruin everything around you. So don't be a man, don't be masculine. Just try to make yourself happy, but don't, but don't be, don't be a man in, in doing it and hope for the best. And it has left them with such a sense of purposelessness that I think it has become for many a prison and, and they just, they don't, they don't know what to do. And yet they know they're supposed to be doing something. They long to do something that matters. They don't know what that is. And really this book is my attempt to, to try and, and, and work back through for me, what is the foundational truth of my life, which is what does the Bible say about what God has called men to do and how does that vision empower us and, and call us towards something great? Well, let's actually go a little bit deeper on that because uh, there's another quote earlier in the book. It's this, all is not well with men in America and that spells trouble for the American Republic. So there's there's a lot there in those two sentences, but specifically we're told by reliable sources, Josh, like you know MSNBC and Vox and all these other places that we live in a patriarchal system dominated by men, but then we're also at the same time told that men don't really matter. But if they do matter, then that means they're toxic, which means they're patriarchal, which means here, let me just run around in this gigantic circle for the rest of my life. That's a leading to a sickness that pervades our culture. And we'll get more into the actual specifics of that later. But, but why would you say even more to elucidate your point that all is not well with men in America? Well, just look at the numbers. Look at some of the data, for instance. We have record high numbers of suicides among men, especially young men. We have record high numbers of drug abuse. We have record high numbers of alcohol abuse. We have record high numbers of depression, generally, and then a record high level of fatherlessness. More men and women today, kids in America, grow up without a dad in the home than ever before in our history, number one, but also more than almost any other country in the world. I mean, let that sink in. Yeah. The United States has fewer fathers in the home than just about every other so-called developed country and most every other country in the world. It is an astounding figure. So you look at that and you think about, man, what does this say about men? I'll throw one more at you. There are fewer men working today who are able-bodied. I'm not talking about those who are seriously injured. Able-bodied, fewer mm-hmm. men working than at just about any point in American history. Those are not good trend lines. So you look at that and you think something is not right here. And that is not good for our country because we live in a republic, which means we live in a nation that is governed by the people. And it depends ultimately on the character of the people. And if you've got the men of this country who are unable to support themselves, let alone wives and children and neighborhoods and and communities, you're not going to have a republic for very long. No, you won't. And if you're constantly surrounded by people that are abdicating their responsibility, you can't throw your hands up in shock when things don't get done in a timely manner or in a positive manner. And and we'll dig more into specifically that stuff as we go into part two of your book, because your book's split into two parts. But one of the themes that is really prevalent in part one of the book, but also throughout the entire book, is you talk about... I guess you frame the arguments and philosophies that are downstream of Epicureanism. Okay. So I'm assuming there are some philosophers in my audience, but for the most part, guys do not know about Epicureanism or any of those types of things. So can you give us a little bit of a primer on what that is and specifically how that has a direct impact on the discussion of modern manhood? 
Absolutely. It's an old idea that really now has incredible relevance for today. Epicurus was an ancient Greek philosopher and he was an atheist. His view of life was that the universe is empty, that your life is meaningless, that the whole world is governed by atoms. He's one of the first people to actually discover that the, the atom. So he was right about that, but he thought they moved totally randomly. History was totally random. Your life is totally random. What did he draw from that? He said, just, just live to make yourself happy. I mean, in the short time you have on earth, Try to make yourself happy. Try to be tranquil. Try to avoid conflict. Put yourself at the center of the world. If that isn't the modern left's mantra for today, I don't know what is. So Epicurus, I think, is maybe the philosopher of the age. How does that relate to men? That is the same philosophy men are told from the time they're little, that your life doesn't matter, that the universe is empty. The best thing you can do with your life is try to put yourself at the center of it. Just don't be a man, though, or pursue the masculine virtues because right. that's going to ruin everybody else's life. So as you're describing that now and as I was reading the book, I was reminded just of the overall concept of libertinism. And so there are a couple of different ways to define libertine or libertinism. One of that is to be a free thinker. Of which point I think everybody with a functioning brain would say, yeah, that's that's a good idea. You should be a free thinker to a degree. Don't just be a dogmatic individual. Challenge things. Think things through. But another way of describing libertinism is living without any moral restraint whatsoever. And so I feel like we've lost the thread on Epicureanism or libertinism and gotten away from, hey, let's just think, let's let's question everything. Let's make sure we think things through to where it's just like, hey, live however you want to live. And anyone that says you shouldn't do that is a bigot. Yeah, I think the problem what you see with this, this leftist philosophy, this Epicurean philosophy today is, is that it doesn't produce people who stand up and question. It produces docile androgynous consumers. Yeah. That's the end goal of it. You know, so what's the message today that men are told? It is go to your basement, boot up that computer, sit in front of a screen, buy some stuff, entertain yourself, don't ask any questions, do as you're told. Be a consumer. And you, you, that's your end goal in life. Be a consumer. Well, what do consumers do? They do what they're told. They're constantly entertained. And then other people run their lives and run the government. What we need in this country are men who say, you know what? I'm going to turn off the screen. I'm going to come out of the basement. I'm going to get a job. I'm going to take on responsibility. And I'm going to think for myself. That is exactly what a man does. That's what the biblical picture of manhood is and much more. But that's what I think today's left in particular doesn't want. Okay. So I want to veer way off and then come right back to where we are. So again, no one in the staff get nervous. All right, guys, I'm going to stick to the script here. Guys, there's not a script. That's another joke. Okay, you mentioned an androgynous or androgyny. Yeah. So that's basically you have both female and male characteristics. Like, you know, it's just basically there, there's no gender. Do you think that part of the push, because there's a lot of pushes for transgenderism, there's a lot of reasons for that in terms of like breaking down the the pillars of society and the cornerstones of society. But is part of what you're talking about uh, this androgyny, do you think the trans movement is, is kind of like rocket fuel for that? Because again, LGBTQ, those letters don't technically mix together. There are a lot of gay and lesbian folks right now that are like, wait a minute, trans and kids, what are y'all doing? Like this, this is insane. Or am I potentially drawing a connection? That's not, that's a little bit too broad. No, no, I think you're right. No, I think the radical trans ideology, which you see the left now trying to push everywhere, literally everywhere. You can't turn on the television without seeing it. It's in school curriculum. Says that there is no male and female, that there are no, it, it's really part of the overall leftist view of the world, which is there are no eternal truths. There is no eternity at all. There's only the here and now, and everything is a social construct, right? I mean, there's nothing permanent. Mm -hmm. It's all just made up as we go along. And that includes male and female. So those aren't real. 
And if you think they are real, you're deluded and oppressive. And this is where we get to the patriarchy point. If you're a man and you say, wait a minute, no, there is such a thing as male and female, they say you're you're an oppressive part of the patriarchy. If you're a woman, then they say, you know, you're alienated from your true consciousness or whatever. And the message is at the end of the day that we ought to just do as we're told. Uh, that when they tell us that there's no such thing as men and women, or when they tell us that biological men ought to be playing women's sports or ought to be in women's locker rooms, we're just supposed to go along with that. And my answer to that is, is that you are totally out of touch of, with reality if you believe that. And it's time to say hard no. There is such a thing as male and female. There are eternal truths and we have to stand up for them. So literally just this morning, we have a section of our show called The Forging Table. And so The Forging Table is every Sunday, me and a group of guys, we get together. We're all laymen. None of us are pastors or professional Christians. And we just go through books of the Bible. So it's basically a men's Bible study. And I just happen to, you know, put some microphones up and hit record. And here in a minute, we're going to do a, a couple of Proverbs. So this morning I was reviewing Proverbs 1. All right. So so the kickoff to this, you know, wisdom literature. And Proverbs 1 is soaking in its description of fools and simple people. And by simple people, we don't mean people that like vanilla ice cream and whittling a stick on their porch. We literally mean people that are simple-minded, that are almost impenetrable with the truth. And so I'm kind of stuck, Josh, a little bit between wanting to yank these people to the right side and to be like, shake their ears until it's like, be logical, you weirdo. And there's another part of me that's like, hey, this is pearls before swine. Like, there's just going to be people like that in the world. So I just, do I throw my hands up and do nothing? Oh, no, we can't do that. I mean, we, we can't afford to throw our hands up and do nothing or else we're going to end up with our kids uh, being taught that the gender that God has made them is wrong, that they need to take drugs that will sterilize them. We're going to end up with our girls not able to play sports because they won't exist any longer for girls. I, I think I would just say to particularly Christians out there, if you think that, hey, if I just go to church, I'm a nice person and, and keep my beliefs inside the church and, and keep to myself, they'll be nice to me and won't hurt me. You're very wrong. You're, to you're totally wrong. I wish that were true. That's not true. What the left wants, what the, the radical sort of atheistic agenda wants in our society is to eradicate all of the influence of the Bible. They want to totally dominate this, this new, frankly, Marxist, cultural Marxist agenda. They want to impose that as a new religion on the whole of our society, and they're not going to stop. I mean, that's why there's such a radical push, whether it's the transgender movement or CRT or whatever the latest sort of Marxist cultural thing is. It's, a, it's an alternate religion that they are pushing, and they want to use government to push. And we just have a point where, listen, it's our obligation to stand up for the truth. That's my view. You don't have to be, you don't have to be harsh about it. Although sometimes, you know, it, you do have to be a little harsh to, to get your point heard. But you, we've got to be willing, I think, to stand up for the truth and to say this is right, this is wrong, this is real, this is false, and you can call me whatever name you want, but I'm I'm not going to be moved off of that. Well, I was hoping my question was going to set you up for an easy spike and thank goodness you spiked it down because I, I tell that to my audience all the time because I run into Christians that kind of fit a couple of different categories. You have the kind of the Benedict option, Christians that are like, you know what, we're just, we're, we're not supposed to be parts of this world. Like we're fish on land. Like we just need to take ourselves out of it. At which point you have to ask, you know, if you're not a preservative, if you're not preserving the culture, how can you be salt and light? Because salt's a preservative anyway. But then the other side is the, I want to be known for what I'm for, not what I'm against Christians. 
And these are people that apparently don't know how words work because if you say that you are for something, you are automatically simultaneously communicating that you are against other things. Like if I am for protecting unborn babies in the womb, I am against sucking them out with a vacuum tube in pieces. And so like, do, do you feel like Christians, and I guess you could make a more broader category of conservative Christians. Do you feel like they're doing they're doing doing the work of actually pushing back now. Do you feel like they've been pushed and pushed and pushed for so long that they're finally starting to fight back a little bit? Because that's the sense I, I get. I, I do too. I think I think that's right. I think that's certainly true for for Christians who are who are living their lives. You know, moms and dads out there who have just finally had enough. And I, listen, I think there's a real sense that as believers, our obligation is to witness to the Lord in every sphere of life in which He's called us. So you just think for a second for those who are like, well, but you know, it doesn't. Politics doesn't matter or that it's that's kind of a mess or, or, you know, the business world like that's outside of the church. So what are we saying? Are we saying that that Jesus is not Lord in the sphere of government? Are we saying that Jesus is not Lord over the sphere of, of business and commerce? Or are we saying that Jesus is only Lord within the, this little building that we go to on Sundays and Wednesday nights? That's that's not find that for me in the Bible. You won't find that anywhere. So I think we've got to recover as Christians a sense that God is Lord. Jesus is Lord over every sphere of life. And therefore, we have an obligation to witness to him in every sphere of life and to do that, especially when it costs us. And we're living in a moment now where, yeah, if you take a stand and say, no, actually, I think there is such a thing as male and female, or you say, no, I don't I don't want biological boys in my girl's locker room, it might cost you something. It's sad that that's the case, but that is the case. But hey, it, it is a it is a great and noble thing uh, to be willing to pay something and to have to pay something in defense of the gospel and of truth. And that's the time we're at now. Well, I would certainly agree with that. And I forget who said it because I saw it here in the last couple of weeks. But to the the Benedict Option Christians or the be known for what I'm for, not what I'm against Christians, I would ask them, so are you okay with only atheists running the government or only atheists running your school board or only atheists running Fortune 500, Fortune 100, Fortune 10 companies? Because that's when it's like, oh, the rubber's meeting the road now. And your question just made me uncomfortable. It's like, yeah, that was the whole point. So, you know, section one of the book or part one of the book really does set up section two, because part two, you list six identities or virtues that men should be or, or strive for. And that's husband, father, warrior, builder, priest, and king. Now, I have questions prepared for each one of those, but I'm feeling generous today, okay? I'm going to actually let you choose which ones we talk about, or at least the order that we talk about them in. We may hit them all, we may not. So which one do you want to discuss first? Well, let's let's start with husband, and the, and the reason is, A, it's first in the book, but also I, I think that for young men, one of the most important messages that they can hear that is directly contrary to what they're being told now in the culture is, that it is a wonderful thing to be married and have a family. And that's something mm -hmm. you should aspire to. It's not like second best. It's not, oh, delay that as long as you can. If you want to leave a legacy in this life, and you should, you should want to. If you want to do that, the best thing you can do, besides following Christ with all of your heart, mind, strength, and soul, is get married and have a family. So maybe let's start there. Yeah, let's start with husband because I got married when I was 22, but my wife and I didn't have kids for 11 years. And so we have two sons right now, a three-year-old named James and a one-year-old named Elijah. But part of the the reason why that there's this problem with what you just described is another thing that you mentioned earlier in the interview, Josh, and that's trading the real thing for porn and video games. Because in video games, 
I'm the master of my universe. Like I've prestiged five times in Call of Duty or I've won 17 seasons in a row on Madden or whatever the game is that you're playing. So you don't have to dominate in the real world because you can dominate with your thumbs. And then you can act like a real hero, you know, with your pants around your ankles while sitting at your computer, as opposed to going out and asking a young lady if she'd like to go with you to coffee or, you know, to go to lunch or something like that. Talk to me a little bit about I guess how great Satan is at giving you the counterfeit. So he's he's giving you this idea that you're in control by playing video games. And he's also giving you the idea that you're the man by showing you porn. And what it's causing you to do is push off the true and difficult path of being a husband. I think that my, my basic message in the book, or one of them is, is that the journey to manhood, to full manhood, to biblical manhood is a journey of character. And that means forging your character. It means acquiring these virtues of soul. And that's hard work. But you know what? Anything that is worth doing is going to be hard. And that's for sure true of acquiring the character of a husband, becoming someone who can make a commitment and can keep it, becoming someone who is willing to sacrifice his life for the good of others. And the problem with the things you just mentioned, video games and porn, let's take the second one in particular is, yeah, it just deals in unreality. I mean, the porn industry sells its product as like supposedly the ultimate example of masculinity. You know, you're never mm -hmm. more a man than when you're using their product. But in fact, what, what all of the data shows, and there's now a lot of it, what it shows is, is that porn usage, especially in any kind of quantity, makes men less confident. It makes men less outgoing. It makes them less likely to go out and ask a real woman on a date. It makes them less able to form relationships and keep them. So the truth is, is that it does, it works in your soul in a corrosive fashion. It does just yeah. the opposite of what really, uh, of, of what true risk taking would look like, and I guess I would just hone in on this: is that a key part of being willing to be a husband and to form the character of a husband is willing to put yourself out there and take a risk. And that's what you do when you go ask a real woman on a date. You risk that she may say no to you, she may reject you. That's what you do throughout your marriage when you sacrifice and put your wife first. That's going to hurt. There's going to be conflict. There's going to be difficulty. Hey, guess what? That's life. But being willing to risk yourself and face it is how you form that character and continue to grow into manhood. And you can't do that if you're sitting in front of a computer screen in your basement. Well, and the same thing is if you don't take the chance, you're losing out on an opportunity to build resilience. We talk about building spiritual, mental, and physical resilience on a daily basis. That's the ability to bounce back. So if you get told no, all right, well, uh, go back to the drawing board. Maybe I got to do something else. Or No, no, no. This girl. She's something special. I need to ask her again, but do it better. Like you're missing out on that opportunity, but also with pornography in particular, probably the most nefarious thing. And I just talked to a father of three kids yesterday about this and his son's getting to that age where, you know, you really got to start checking the phones and checking everything else, but it's the scripting that children learn. Because when I was a little kid, the first porn I was exposed to was still images on a magazine hidden in my buddy's closet. And now it's in elementary school, they're seeing hardcore, violent rape porn. And the girls that are watching it are thinking, oh, this is what I'm supposed to enjoy. And the the boys that are watching it are like, oh, this is what she's going to want me to do. And so there's, there's a nefarious thing with the scripting that happens. And I don't necessarily need you to comment on that, but I did just want to point that out, that it, that is something additional. So we described husband. Let's go ahead and go into father. So I'm going to take the reins away from you, but don't worry. I'll give All them right. back because I think those two are very, very much in, in – in tight, cont not contention, but that they shouldn't be anyway. But you pointed something out earlier in this interview, but also in the book that never really occurred to me. And it's like, well, duh, of course, that's the, that's the reality. But the United States has the highest rate 
of children living in single parent households in the world. And no, guys, that's not mainly living with dads, single dads. It's mainly with single mothers. So talk to me a little bit about that, because you do have these people that never want to get married because they don't want to potentially get married and have to give away half their stuff to some woman somewhere down the line. Or they're like, they want to be as far away from kids as possible. I know of men that are single that have gotten vasectomies so that they don't accidentally get a girl pregnant and have to marry her and have to you know deal with the kid and pay for the kid and all those types of things. But the epidemic of fatherlessness, I think most of our issues as a, as a country and as a people group can go back to the fact that in every racial group except for Asians, for the last 50 years, fatherlessness has gone through the roof and it doesn't seem like it's stopping. No, that's exactly right. And, and you look at what comes along with that. Look what comes with the fatherlessness. It is huge increases in crime, especially for young men. It is huge increases in abuse, especially toward young women. It is huge increases in mental health, depression, and suicide. So I often say, hey, you want to address the problem of childhood poverty in America? Put dads back into the homes. I mean, the, the data is just really clear on this. The poverty rate among two parent families where dad is present and working and contributing the poverty rate is extremely low. That doesn't necessarily mean they're rich. It just means that you put a dad in there who's actually providing for his family that he has helped to create. And it is amazing what that does to alleviate poverty. On the other hand, take a dad out of the equation and you get all of these other dysfunctions. So I think it, it's absolutely critical just from a social point of view. But I just say this to the men who's like, ah, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to deal with kids. It's a hassle. They're, they're going to they're gonna take over my life. Uh, listen, it, it's no mistake that if you look at the story of the Bible, when God decides he's going to change the world, he, he, he's going to fix the problem of sin and darkness and evil in the world. Genesis chapter 12, what does he do? He calls Abraham. What does he call Abraham to do? To become a father. I mean, think about that. He could have done any number of things. He doesn't call him to become a warrior, though he will be that. He doesn't call him to go out and start a company, though Abraham is going to be very prosperous. As it turns out, very good at business. But foundationally, God says to him, you're going to be a father. Now, there's something about that that I think men should take note of, something about investing your life in somebody else's and making somebody else the center and focus of your life, not yourself, that is profoundly, profoundly fulfilling, liberating, and also biblical. And I think that we should we should embrace that reality. When I think the way you described it in the book was you're, you're, as a father, you're trying to replace yourself. And so, yeah. you know, if you've read any business book or gone to business school, like the very first day of the first class, they're talking about, hey, if you're a mid-level manager, before you can get that next promotion, you need to prepare a couple of your underlings to be able to replace you so that you can more easily ascend the ladder. Well, the same thing happens within your small village, your household, which is you're trying to replace the things that you've done by setting a foundation of morality, perhaps financially, those types of things. So I'm looking at the clock here and we've got four things left and we only probably have time to probably hit two of those because I have a couple other questions. So you get to choose warrior, builder, priest, king. Give me the next one. Well, I feel like we got to talk about warrior because that's so central to, to what you do and to your focus in terms of pushing back the darkness. So let's talk about that. So specifically within that, and guys, this is probably a good time for me to mention, we are barely scratching the surface on this book. And you guys know that I've read a, a, a myriad of men's books and the manhood, and this is how you're supposed to do it. Most of them are just nonsense. This is not one of those. This is one you need to pick up. It is in the show notes. Do your duty, okay? But the thing about that chapter that almost made my skin crawl, because I you know, I, this is probably going to come as a shock to you, but I was a fairly loud and bombastic and energetic kid, but my parents never even once, 
even considered putting me on any type of medication if our teachers were having problems with me because I was a knucklehead. I wasn't setting things on fire. I was trying to make people laugh. They're like, look, we're not going to drug our kid because you suck at your job is essentially what they told our teachers. But right now in 2023, we drug the warrior out of our young men because we're like, oh, you have ADD or you have ADHD, otherwise known as being a boy. And they're like, here's this little pill that, oh, it's no big deal. It's a brain altering drug, even though we haven't done a brain scan to see if your boy even needs it. And then we expect these young men by the time they're 18, 19 or 20 to potentially go and fight and die for our country. And then you look at the the back end and you see all of these military agencies and these branches of the military that are so far behind on their recruiting. There are a lot of reasons for that. But one of the reasons is that our boys are too fat, too out of shape and too sick to even go into the military and get through basic training. So you can take that wherever you want to go with it. Cause you talked about all those things in that chapter. So fire away. Well, I think one of the reasons that we see so many of the professional class, the professional educators, the, it's usually the bureaucrats actually and the, the left, why they want to drug boys and they want to suppress the boyishness is because they don't really believe in, in the reality of evil anymore. Here's what I mean by that. Mm -hmm. If you think that there really is evil in the world, if you think there really are dangers that have to be faced, then you look at that boy who's got all of that energy and all of that ambition, and let's just call it for what it is, all that aggressiveness. You look at that mm -hmm. and you think that's going to save lives one day. That guy's going to go out and stand on the line. Or even if he's not going to be a soldier professionally, that guy's going to be willing to put himself at risk to help other people in ways large and small. And you look at that and you think, man, there is something I've got to channel. I don't want to suppress that. I want to nurture it. I want to channel it. But I think today in our dominant culture, you know, we're told, no, nah, evil, there's no such thing. The only thing that's evil is capitalism. You know, the only thing that's evil is, is American history. You know, that's what's evil. People are inherently good, you know. And so this rambunctious kid, you got to settle him down. He's disrupting stuff. He's making it hard for you to do your job. Just drug him. I, I think we've, we've gotten it completely backwards. And what we've got to do for our young men, our boys, is say, listen, God made you that way for an incredible purpose. Part of your job is to push back evil in your yep. beginning in your own heart, by the way, and then your family and in your community. You were born to do that. So we got to take that aggression and that ambition and that drive and we got to push it and forge it and 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 nurture it so it can be that kind of positive force that is willing to confront the darkness. I can't say anything back to that aside from amen. So we get one more and you get three choices. So you want to talk about builder, priest, or king? Let's talk about priest because I think that one is one a lot of guys would look at and it's like, huh, that, that seems unusual to me. Well, let's look at this quote from that section. Here lies the deeper meaning of the statement we first encountered in Genesis that God made man, quote, in his own image, unquote. That means to do something, certainly, as we have seen, to husband, to father, to fight and build, to rule. But it also means, more fundamentally, to become someone, a man of a certain kind of character, a man who reflects God, a man whom God knows. So why does that man need to be known by God, Josh? Here's the deal, I think, that is, is the fundamental, fundamental baseline call of, of, of manhood. It is to reflect the image of God. And you think we talk about a high calling. There's no higher calling available in, in the world than to think that the creator put me here and he wants me to reflect him into the rest of the world to the point that he wants to use me to accomplish his purposes in the world. And I just want to say this, this is one of the reasons I want to talk about priests. I just want to say this to every guy out there is that there are things God will do through you, through your work, 
through your fathering, through your marriage, uh, through your coaching that he will not do through anybody else. You have a unique destiny that's on your life. And that's part of the incredible privilege, but also responsibility of being someone who God made in his own image and is supposed to take that image of God out into the world, which is that if you don't do that, there'll be real loss. If you don't do that, people's lives around you will be different than they could have been. And the world will be different and less than it could have been. So I think that's an incredibly high calling that men need to hear today is that they're made to bring God's image, God's very presence with them out into the world. And boy, that is that is an incredible purpose and incredibly high calling. Well, if not you, then who? If not now, then when? Most men are just looking around waiting for some sheepdog to come in and save them or waiting for the government to come and take care of them and change their diapers. And it's like at the end of the day, you might want to look internally before you look at all the external or uh, extrinsic forces that are happening in the world. Now, Josh, we've had a lot of fun these last 30 minutes or so, but I'm actually kind of mad at you. Do you want to know why? Okay. Tell me why. Okay. You spend the entire book talking about how the Bible lays out, you know, a clean roadmap for moral masculinity. You do a great job. You talk about Adam and Abraham and David and Solomon. Solomon, And here I am. I'm getting all excited. You've been setting it up. You've been setting it up. You've been setting it up. And then the book just ends. And you don't even mention Jesus of Nazareth as the perfect model of manhood. And in fact, I counted it. You only mention the name of Jesus eight times in the book. And five of those were actually in an excerpt that you pulled from one of Blaise Pascal's writings. And so it's like, wait a minute, you technically only mentioned Jesus three times. I know you've gotten this criticism before, but it was like, all right, you were all about the Old Testament and I was just waiting for you to just hit the ball off the tee and you didn't. So my benefit of the doubt here is, is there a manhood part two around the corner that you're just lying to us about yet? Or, or is this just really how you wanted to end it? No, I, I think that, well, here, here's the thing I would say that I say both at the beginning and at the end of the book is that there's only one ultimate man, capital M, and that is Jesus Christ. And for Christians, we know that the story really begins and ends with him, right? Because it's, it's not just that Jesus comes on the scene at the end, it's that we are created in his image to begin with. So we are all men, including Adam, actually in the image of Christ, and we see Christ bringing that mission, the mission of Adam to fruition in the end. But the other reason I wrote the book as I did is that I wanted I wanted people who don't consider themselves to be Christians, who don't know the Lord, who maybe don't consider themselves believers of any kind, to be able to pick up the book and say, okay, I'm kind of drawn in by this and I'm curious. And then they get to the end and they're like, wait a minute, I want to know more. Like what, who, who is this? As I, as I leave it at the end, talking about the, the one perfect man, who is that man? What does that mean for my life? I wanted to leave them leaning forward into that. So maybe I'll just have to write another book. Okay. And if you write the other one, just send it to me before you release it. And I'll, of course, just mark it all up and improve it. I'll do what I can. Okay. But uh, I don't want your staff to get mad at me. So we'll make this the last question of the day. Okay. So in the book, and obviously you write the book about what you want to write about. You're not writing it about what you don't want to write about it. But there was almost no mention whatsoever of the paltry state of masculinity inside the church today. You, you, you rightfully point out how the Epicurean society that we're living in fights against masculinity in all of its forms, but you don't address how the church is not teaching boys how to become God honoring men either, how, you know, men aren't being discipled so that they're not 
and they don't even feel capable to catechize their families in, in the ways of God and those types of things. And that's part of why I'm here on this planet is not to teach churches how to build men's ministries. Men's ministries just put on, you know, an, one event per year where they bring in an ex-football player to come and speak and say, well, I used to chase women and, and do coke, but now I love Jesus. And then they eat a bunch of meat and go home. I want to teach churches to be man friendly where from the moment a guy walks in, whether he was a tier one operator or just got off of an oil rig or something like that, he walks in and goes, Hey, I think this place is for me. That, that music isn't a key I can actually sing. These men around here look a little rougher than the doughy men I grew up with. But I guess just talk to me about the state of masculinity in the church, because I feel like most people have this dichotomy that I did when I was younger, that all the godly men are inside the church doing you know God stuff, and all the manly men are outside the church doing man stuff. Yeah, I think that one of the reasons for that, I, I agree with that assessment. I mean, I, I think just statistically, you look at evangelical Christianity in America, and it is very female dominated. And on the one hand, it's like, hey, praise the Lord. I'm, I'm glad there's so many women who are in church and want to get their families to church. But you, you do have to ask, where are the men? And I do think that that part of the reason for that is, is that men don't often hear from the pulpit uh, sermons and, and messages and teaching that is directly relevant to them and challenges them and calls them to be the men that they're meant to be. I mean, it just, it is not directed towards that kind of vision and purpose. And I, I would just say this, I mean, I think that there's no, there's, there's no mistake, uh, that, you know, the, the proverb says that without a vision, the people perish, right? I mean, they're without a vision, without a sense of purpose, men in this country right now are, are perishing. And so, the church is the place where, above all, we should be supplying that purpose, that vision, that calling. So I'm glad you're doing what you're doing in your ministry. I'm not a pastor. I'm not, I'm not. I wouldn't give any advice to pastors how to run their church, other than that I would just hope they will preach the gospel in all of its fullness. And part of that is is, is giving men a vision for their lives as men and helping them to see that that God calls them as men and wants to use them in every sphere of their life as men, as fathers, as husbands, in their work. Uh, in their business, in their mentoring, and that he's got an incredible plan and destiny for him. I think if you preach that and see that, you'll see men respond to it. Well, I'm not a pastor either, but I have no problems giving pastors advice. And my advice to some of them would be, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all knowledge. That's Proverbs 1 as well. When you talk about boyfriend Jesus, or you talk about cute and cuddly lamb of God, and you ignore justice, and you ignore the line of Judah, and you ignore judgment, you're only giving your congregation part of the picture. And so I think that that's a, a good thing for everyone to consider. But we're up against time here. We've talked about everything. Again, guys, the book is Manhood, The Masculine Virtues America Needs. But that's all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? No, not at all. Thank you for having me. All right, Josh Holly, thank you for coming on on Daunted Life of Man's podcast. Thanks so much. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed my time with Senator Josh Hawley. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So I've got a couple of links for you today. I've got a link to his personal website and also a link to where you can pick up this manhood book. Guys, it is well worth your time and worth your effort. Go ahead and pick it up. It's right there in the show notes. Thank you guys for listening to this episode. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. Also, we want to thank the band Holy Name for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is our song Perpetua, which is off their self titled debut album on face down records the links are in the description i'm your host kyle thompson remember keep pushing back darkness 
Keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. Keep seeking the Lion of Judah.